This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Casey McPherson hasn't taken a typical path to becoming a bio-entrepreneur. The singer-songwriter is the frontman for Alpha Rev, an up-and-coming indie band from Austin, Texas. But rather than focus on his music career, McPherson instead put his energy into finding a treatment for his daughter Rose, who was diagnosed with an ultra-rare neurodevelopmental condition. The issues he faced in working with academic researchers led him to co-found Everlim Bio, a rare disease lab designed to provide a range of services for ultra-rare disease patients seeking to discover treatments for their conditions. We spoke to McPherson, Chief Innovation Officer at Everlim, about what led him to create the company, its rare disease lab as a service model, and how he's working to change the discovery landscape for ultra-rare disease therapies. Casey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Danny. Appreciate it. We're going to talk about your daughter, Rose, your experiences following her diagnosis with a rare neurodevelopmental condition, and how that led you to create Everlim Bio. Let's start with Rose, though. How did she come to be diagnosed with an ultra-rare neurologic disease? Yeah, so, you know, I'm a dad of two daughters. Weston just turned nine today, and Rose is seven. And when Rose was born, we saw that, you know, she was definitely born different in terms of her, she wasn't reaching her developmental milestones. And the, my story is almost synonymous with every parent's story with a child with a, you know, neuro disease is, the doctors say, oh, it's okay, she'll catch up. And uh, and she was doing things like she was uh, choking on her food. Um, her uh, 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 motor skills were underdeveloped. Uh, she would fall flat on her face uh, without putting her hands in front of her and just, you know, bust her forehead or nose when she was walking. Um, but where things really where we really sort of weren't taking the doctor's advice anymore was after she lost her ability to speak. So she had a few words she could say, mom, dad, outside. Um, she could do some signing. And when we, when we saw the words go away, we knew something was wrong. And, and, you know, uh, typically right now, a neurologist will test for, 
diseases that currently have therapeutics. And so they run these panels instead of a whole exome or a whole genome sequence. We learned that, okay, we need to run this, this, this whole exome sequence, which we did through GeneDx. And I sent that. She was about two at the time, two and a half, and sent that to the neurologist. You know, I go in the neurologist's office and he says, Casey, Rose has a rare genetic disease called HNRNPH2. Um, there is no cure or therapeutic. There is no clinical trial. And there is nothing we can do. Good luck. And that was it. And that was the beginning. <laughs> well, you say she was diagnosed with this condition. It's heterogeneous nuclear ribonucleoprotein H2. What exactly is the condition? What was known about it? So at the time, it was still, um, you know, a VUS variant of unknown significance in the uh, genetic report. Um, what was on GeneDx report, and, and, and I give kudos to GeneDx for this because I think we need more and more of this, is Dr. Wendy Chung and Dr. Jennifer Bain's email addresses were on there, and they're out of Columbia. And Dr. Jennifer Bain had uh, discovered this uh, a, a series of variants within this HNR and PH2 gene. Um, so she had begun to fund and do a natural history study on the few diagnosed patients she could find. Um, what is currently known now is that it is uh, an allele-specific disease, you know, and so the boys have a very, very um, terrible phenotype if they're even born, um, uh, severe, you know, uh, developmental delay and seizures. The girls uh, live, but you, they, many of them cannot speak, severely developmentally delayed. Some of them can walk, um, some of them can't. And at puberty, we see a regression. Um, and so something happens um, hormonally or something in, you know, the, the, this gene affects a lot of downstream genes. And so, you know, the, the phenotype is very wide ranging from uh, a 20 or 30 year old girl who can hold a sentence like maybe a five year old could to uh, a 10 year old girl who's catatonic in a wheelchair. You mentioned the doctor told you that there were no therapies available, but did he suggest any way forward for you? He just said, email these two scientists <laughs> and maybe they can help you, you know? And, and of course that's, that's what I did. And that's, that's how I got started with all this. And how is Rose doing today? How has the condition affected her? So, you know, Rose uh, is, she can walk, she can't speak, she lost her ability to sign, and she's regressed in many ways from a vocalization standpoint. She used to, you know, I've been a musician for most of my life, and, and so uh, we used to, she could sing melodies with me, um, she could repeat vowel sounds with me, uh, now she can't even do that. 
Um, and that's just changed over the last few years. Um, she's confused a lot of the time. She is uh, scared a lot of the time. Um, she struggles with controlling, like if she's very happy, it's a, a joy that is some of the most intoxicating joy I've ever experienced. And, and then when she's pissed, <laughs> it, everybody knows, you know, and so I can't take her to a restaurant as a family. We don't go out to eat. We don't go to grocery stores. Um, we don't do things that normal parents do because Rose uh, can't, she can't handle it, you know? Um, so it's, you know, it's just a different, a different lifestyle. We stay at home a lot. Use Instacart. <laughs> you mentioned you're a musician. You were the front man for the band Alpha Rev. Your career was taking off, but you decided to put your attention into pursuing a therapy for Rose. You started to cure a Rose Foundation to develop a treatment for her and others like her. The plan was to develop an antisense oligonucleotide therapy. What happened? Yeah, so, you know, I... Uh started the foundation um, largely due to the mentorship of Julia Vitarello. Um, she meant, you know, I was very fascinated by her story and how she raised the money and created therapeutic in such a short amount of time because Rose has, you know, uh, a, not a, uh, uh, for this treatment to work, it, it, it needs to happen sooner rather than later. And so I, got the foundation together. I put a scientific team together. Obviously, Columbia made sense um, to work with because they had a natural history study going on. Um, uh, Dr. Jennifer Bain, who's a wonderful human being, connected me with uh, a scientist by the name uh, Christopher Ricapero, who uh, really was experienced in um, uh, regenerative medicine and had some experience in, in, uh, um, and neuronal work. And he wanted, to, he was building out his lab. And so I began talking to him about funding his lab to do, um, an ASO and a base editing project and just really, you know, come from a multimodality approach, do disease modeling, you know, in parallel with drug development for H&R and PH2 with the idea, hey, could we, could we make a drug for Rosie? Why couldn't we do this for other rare um, genetic diseases that were amenable? It was great until I had to work with the tech transfer office. And, you know, up till now, I had, uh, up till that point, I had begun to see families funding these uh drug programs only to see the academic institution licensing this out to a biotech or pharma company and for very realistic reasons that biotech or pharma company could not commercialize this drug um you know there just weren't enough patients um the data wasn't something their investors or board were willing to take the risk with uh and so the drug would get shelved um and literally children would die and suffer because this drug is this, this intellectual property is sitting on the shelf in this company. And I didn't want that to happen. And so I, I, I was not comfortable with uh, their 
standard SRA agreement. And so we began to work on a new type of agreement for family foundations with ultra rare diseases. Um, during this time, another company was pursuing um, uh, Columbia for uh, a multitude of neurodevelopmental diseases um, and uh, with Wendy Chung. And the tech transfer signed an agreement with them while we were negotiating. And, and, and by the time they sent me, this is about five or six months from the point we started negotiating. Scientists ready to go. I'm ready to go with money. <laughs> and I'm waiting five or six months with the tech transfer office to just get the correct paperwork that they come back and they said, hey, we can't, we can't do this anymore. It's not going to work for us. And, and so that obviously was, was, that was five or six months of my daughter's life. I couldn't get back. Why were the IP rights so important to you? And, and why were, why was the university so inflexible on terms? Well, I wouldn't say they were inflexible on terms. I, so first the IP rights, I think, and I don't think people talk about this enough. Family foundations are going to be some of your best operators if they're going after a drug for two reasons. One, because they have the passion to see the program through. This isn't just a money play. This is a saving a bunch of kids uh, motivation. And then two, you get uh, potentially uh, non-dilutive capital and perpetuity when you have a family foundation at the helm, you know, because this is coming from donations and, and grants and, and whatnot. And, and so because the landscape of these diseases that are under, say, a thousand patients, they're just not commercializable with the current FDA regulations and where insurance becomes, uh, approves a drug. So with that, with, with, with knowing that, I think it's incredibly important for the people that want to take this drug. So for me, I could leave an open IND forever if I need to and just, just keep raising whatever, 150, 250,000 per patient to treat these kids, um, which we see with like Columbus Children's Foundation around the gene therapy programs that they do for ultra rare. Um, I didn't want to be in a situation like we've seen at some of these other larger institutions where the, the, the academic institution will come back and say, with your typical SRA, hey, you guys funded a drug now, your milestone payment is a million dollars if you wanna you know, uh, take this to the FDA. And you know, where, are we gonna get, where are we gonna get that money to pay an academic for a drug that probably doesn't even have a whole lot of worth at this moment, you know? And I'm watching that, That's that happened to another family foundation just months ago, you know? So that's why the, the IP was very important to me. That I think they wanted to work with me. I just, you know, at foundations, unless we're, have an incredibly large population and some sort of political power. We're the little guys. And tech transfer 
in my understanding, is where universities are making most of their money. It's not with admissions. And this is a money-making machine. And so, you know, even though they're nonprofit institutions, the tech transfer is very much a business. And, and most rare diseases, especially NF1s and ultra rares, there is no business model yet for that. So, you know, it, it lays on the backs of the parents and, and the foundations to see those programs through. How did that experience lead to you creating Everlim Bio? Well, so after this happened, um, you know, my CSO at the time was Dr. Rodney Bowling, um, who uh, worked at X Biotech and had created multiple therapeutics and and uh, licensed some to Johnson Johnson and other companies, and and he. In many ways, been my teacher on the, on the drug development front, and we were on the front porch thinking, "Man, wouldn't it be nice to have a lab for people like us to at least do all the preclinical work to get to a proof of concept drug, which is primarily what the academics have been hired to do in the past." You know, with these. Um, genetic treatment platforms that most of these foundations are using. And within a month of that, wouldn't it be nice? Uh, I met uh, a very, very successful tech entrepreneur here in Austin who also had some special needs kids and one in particular still undiagnosed. And I was asked pitching him for, for donations. He said, you know, I, I could donate some money, but why don't we just start this company? Why don't we just start this lab? And and so we did, and Rodney quit his job, you know, within months of that conversation. And we hired a few more people and and we started with about a million and a half and put ourselves in a bioincubator to say, could we do preclinical drug development for these families where they own all their data, where we're not a CRO that's just performing cold services, but we're literally doing the preclinical proof of concept drug development work for these foundations and, and uh, um, just a sort of a different approach than what your current CROs. Well, expand on that for me. How does Everlim differ from CROs and, and what's the business model? Well, in some ways we're still trying to figure that out uh, in terms of the business model, but we found a product fit um, with uh, doing preclinical drug development services. So um, right now, a parent like me has to become an expert in their disease and in drug development in order to see a program through. And that shouldn't, well, I should never be here, right? We should never be talking. Um, but if, if we could, if we could uh, take away that pain point for a foundation and say, hey, we can make your cell lines. If, if, if we don't know the target, then we can do some disease modeling to determine what the best target will be and what the best modality will be 
Um, and then we can go and design that modality, whether it's a gene therapy, an ASO, a, a SIRNA, or maybe it's a repurposed drug screen, um, which I still believe almost everybody should do if you have a, if you have a target. We can do all that. And, and so for them, it's, it's very uh, understandable language because um, this, this really, for rare disease, it's not necessarily a science problem. It's a systems problem. And so if we're thinking about drug development differently, then we're doing, you know, FDA regulatory requirements, disease modeling, and proof of concept drug work all in tandem, you know, in parallel. Um, and so we can get through a proof of concept drug in six months if we know the target, as opposed to the five years it might take with an academic institution or not knowing how to navigate the CRO space. How does Everlim work? If, if I wanted to come to Everlim, what would I need before approaching you? And is it an all comers? Does it have to be an ultra rare disease? What's the parameters? Well, I think we're still trying to figure that out too. You know, we're primarily working on neurological diseases. Um, I think largely because most of the foundations that have those neurological rare diseases, uh, we have some really great modalities to go after. Um, but we're, in terms of a requirement, I don't think anyone has to have anything. You know, that's part of the, that's part of the uh, beauty of it is it's, it's almost a direct to consumer um, uh, drug development company. And so, you know, if you, if you, I believe that personalized medicine is what's going to fix the rare disease problem in terms of a business model, in terms of how we approach drug development. And so we're happy to work on an end of one. We're happy to, but we are focused on rare diseases and which, which, you know, I think, Primarily, what that means is we only have to use a couple of cell lines. You know, if you have your control line, you, you, you're not looking at this huge, massive project. You know, you you can really zero in with with a few lines on what you want to do. Everlim is a a for profit business. How how is it funded? Well, Rick, the CEO. Um, uh, the tech guy I was telling you about, he funded it first with the for the first million and a half. Um, we we didn't have to really buy a whole lot of lab equipment, so most of that money has gone to salaries. Um, and so we have a small team of five. And you know, our hope is that you know we are working with some rare disease biotech companies too to do some validation, to do some preclinical pre work for them. And our hope is, you know, we're more expensive than an academic. We're less expensive than a CRO. Um, we're hoping that we're faster than both. And, and so that's sort of where our sweet spot is. And if we can be profitable by this summer, then we can start expanding our team and, you know, um, serving more people, which is, which is certainly my hope. And where are you in terms of developing a treatment for Rose? Yeah, so um, 
it's it's actually pretty exciting what we've been able to accomplish over at Everloom. We, you know, has taken me a tenth of the time uh, than it did with utilizing CROs um, to do uh, any similar work. Uh, we have some we have some really great ASO candidates um, that are doing uh, what we want to see them do in her cell lines. And so, you know, I just got finished meeting with a clinical trials partner that is going to help us navigate uh, the clinical space and the regulatory path um, for this drug. And um, we still have to do some more validation. You know, we still have to do some early stage talks. And, but we have really good reasons to believe that this is going to be a pretty impactful drug. Have you started working with other families and foundations to develop therapies for other conditions? Yeah, so we're we're um, we are we're working on uh, about four other neurological diseases, and some are ASO, some are small molecule screens, some are disease modeling because still unsure of a good quality target, um, and you know that. The other thing I guess I'd like to mention is that we saw with RNA therapeutics that that because companies and academics don't show their bad data around toxicity, that we're working on a tool that um, we want to develop to design and screen um, and store RNA therapeutics. And so we we sort of believe if we can collect global data um, that we can start implementing predictive technology on um, ASO drug design. And so that's, that's a project we're working on now. We've, we have a great design tool we use in-house for our programs, but I am currently trying to raise more money for that um, on, on the Everloom side, which I'm pretty excited about. And how scalable do you think Everloom's approach will be? Well, and that's a great question. Services are really hard to scale. And that's why we started this uh, AI software platform, because ultimately at the end of the day, if we're gonna talk personalized medicine, if we're gonna talk platform genetic treatments, we need to be able to have a computational approach with a massive amount of data so that we can begin to avoid these huge high throughput screening, you know, we see that with, with small molecules. We see that with all RNA drugs. Um, and, you know, I've talked to enough people that I believe if we can collect enough data and, you know, utilizing robotics and a vertically integrated lab and this AI tool we're building, I think at that point it becomes scalable. Services, like, you know, I think are hard to scale. Uh, we the way we're going to be scaling that part is just with pods, team of two or three scientists and a project manager, similar to sort of how Ultragenics does it. I really love their model, um, regardless of the modality um, that we have these teams that can take on about three, four or five projects at a time. But where I think where, where we really see our model scaling is on the computational side. So if we're able to 
collect enough data to design an ASO and not need to screen them and not need to go into animal models because we have enough data of off-targeting toxicity that we can go straight into an IND. Um, I think that's scalable. And so we're, we're, you know, we're working on, on, on that, uh, but that's obviously a, it's a lot of work <laughs> that's going to have to go in to that. And we wanted to be relevant now, you know, and, 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 and so that's why we're sort of taking both, both approaches. We've seen a, a number of efforts to help people develop end of one therapies. How do you think Everlim changes that landscape? Well, I mean, so, you know, we're, I believe that, that we need more, we need more data around end of one therapeutics. Um, it's obviously, there's no business model around it. And the only way to really scale that is if there becomes one. Um, we're actively trying to create technologies and tools that could make that faster and cheaper. Uh, we're not, we're not, certainly not getting into manufacturing, but yet. Um, but, but we're also a part of an ecosystem of companies that, that believe this is the future. And so I think we play a part in this, you know, and, and, uh, and I hope that the work that we do helps move um, that field forward, you know, especially, especially for the rare disease community and, and, and most importantly for these kiddos. As you think about the barriers for others hoping to follow suit and developing therapies for individual patients or, or small groups, are they financial, regulatory, other? What needs to be done to lower the barrier to doing that? Well, I, I mean, there's a lot I think that needs to be done, but three of the main things to me um, would would change the landscape. One is manufacturing. You know, we we make drugs like Budweiser makes beer. <laughs> so when it comes to to GMP manufacturing, I don't know if you've ever seen these facilities. They are huge, and and so small batches is not a uh, it, it, it's not as common, you know, the home brews, the, the, time, the boutique breweries. So I think a market, uh, a pipeline of, um, uh, for manufacturing has got to change. Um, and then there will be no business model until the FDA allows commercialization at what we call a phase one. And because these diseases, if you consider my daughter as a customer, a patient for a biotech or pharma company, all your, all your customers are gone by the time you could commercialize one of these drugs, or at least a lot of them are gone. And so, you know, I think we have to start thinking about genetic treatments as molecular surgical procedures and less like drugs in terms of drug approval you know i can go to a doctor's office and get a brain surgery or a stent um and then i sign off on that risk and that doctor decides whether or not i need that um but i think i think those are the changes and like ways of thinking that that 
uh, we're going to have to to move towards so that there is a viable business model so that companies can get into this and and the next dad like me that's been a full-time musician for most of his life doesn't need to become a a drug developer just to save their child casey mcpherson singer songwriter founder of cure rose foundation and co-founder and chief innovation officer of everland bio casey thanks so much for your time today Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.